Father, we acknowledge through the instruction of your word that we cannot see the beauty of Scripture without a miracle of sight, that there is no true lovers of the Word of God unless the Holy Spirit has fundamentally changed us. We know that before we met you, your Word tells us the condition of our souls. We were at enmity. We were enemies of Jesus Christ. But those who are believers in this room, who are born again, whose hearts have been transformed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that a miracle has taken place in our own soul. So that as we hear, hear the words of life in your Scripture, we recognize that they are truly bread for the sustenance of our spiritual well-being. And as we hear the testimony of your works through history, we are listening to the absolute truth, not only in the perfection of its historical record, but the truth that can actually set man free, free from the law that condemned them to hell because of the just wrath that they deserved and punishment on account of their sin, free to worship you in spirit and in truth, having received the atonement of Jesus Christ when their sins are washed away, free to inherit the estate of Jesus Christ who transferred upon his death to all of the elect as they confess their sins and come to the knowledge of the truth, the glorious estate, the glorious riches of his grace, not only in freedom from our sin, not only in escape from hell, but yes, communion, reunion, reconciliation with the holy God, even the population of the new heavens and new earth. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for these glorious truths. Now, as we turn to your word and we read of these things written so long ago, even in the testimony of our forefather Abraham in the faith, I pray that you would move our hearts to appreciate afresh and anew with deeper levels of understanding and more overflowing joy, the glorious revelation of your work throughout all of covenant history. May this equip us to testify to you with renewed zeal, confidence, joy, and point toward the glories of Christ revealed in Scripture by your power to reveal them to us through the proclamation of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. At the cost of his own blood, Jesus has purchased for us today the opportunity for us to fellowship and to appreciate and to gather around his word proclaimed in Genesis chapter 12. I pray that you turn there today and that your hearts would be open to the reality of his word revealed through the account of Abraham as it continues to unfold in the Genesis record. A brief overview for where we are at in our Genesis series, we've been following the testimony of Abraham and the testimony of other authors of Scripture with regard to the importance of this moment. Genesis chapter 12 opens with the call of Abraham from the city of man, if you will, represented by two locations, Ur and Haran, unto the promises of God, a city that the Lord will show him on the way. We've seen testimony of that revelation as Abraham builds an altar in Shechem and so forth between Ai and Bethel, as the Lord has revealed personally to him that the place where his feet was wa were walking at that time was indeed the land that the Lord had set apart as a covenant promise to his servant and to his lineage. Then we have another chapter opening before us. Well, before we get there, the last two messages that we preached were from Isaiah 50 and 51, as well as Hebrews 11 and 12. And in both of these instances, we noted how other authors of Scripture point to the significance of the Genesis 12 moment. And just by way of historical overview as well, we have seen that there is a sea change in the record of Scripture from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. 
Prior to, it's a record of all of mankind. And then after Genesis 12, in the significant watershed moment in Abraham's history, we find that the rest of Scripture now shifts to focus upon God's intentions to save His people through His promises fulfilled primarily through the lineage of Abraham, his children, and his children's children, and eventually his spiritual children. <coughs> Up to this day, this unfolding is still a reality as the children of Abraham are coming in through the preaching of the gospel. So that's where we are generally in the record. The title of this morning's message is Covenant and Conflict. There's a, definitely a shift in tone in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Suddenly, a negative note is struck. We don't have the same positive, overflowing, altar-building worship as Genesis 12, 1 through 9, but now we have a real test of faith. We have a real conflict that Abraham embraces. Does he do so in faith? Does he do so as a hero? Or does he do so illustrating his own frailty and fallenness? I think we'll find today, generally, the second is the case, covenant and conflict. The aim of this morning's message is to strengthen our faith, therefore, recounting the mercy of God despite His people's failings, even despite the significant sons that He called out from of old, despite their failings. May our faith be strengthened, according to Hebrews, as we recount the mercy of God in spite of the failings of man. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word again as we hear His Word proclaimed to us? Listen as I read. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Here we have the holy word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This, uh, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, then it will go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt, dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels, verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> covenant and conflict. Among the first chapters of covenant history we have in the Genesis account, there is documentation of conflict between the legacies of Shem and Ham. So by way of larger context, to remind you, we have the legacy of Ham featured in the Tower of Babel. Then we have a genealogy. Then we have the legacy of Shem featured in the calling of Abraham. And now we have conflict between two legacies, Ham and the city builders, remember kids, and Shem and the significant sons. What happens when the city of God 
comes in conflict with the city of man. What happens when city-building legacy comes in conflict with <coughs> the significant sons? This conflict is what Abraham feared. And as he set his face under these famine conditions to head toward Egypt, the narrative finds him in this uncertain situation from his perspective. And so our story unfolds today. Early accounts of the progress of God's people include frequent clashes between significant sons or those who find their hope in the Messianic line. Think of the children of Israel. Think of their various leaders through Old Testament history. So conflict between them and city builders. Or when we think of city builders, think of those who invest their faith in the machinations of humanism or the power of what they can build. Okay? So those who find their hope in the Messianic line from time to time come in conflict with those who find their hope in what they can build. So a few examples. Think of Moses versus Pharaoh. 400-some years later, that story unfolds. Think of Joshua versus Jericho upon entry to the Promised Land. A real clash there, real covenant conflict, if you will. City builders versus those who trust in the Messianic hope of covenant through the line of, of, uh, of Abraham. Think of Jonah versus Nineveh. Think of Daniel versus Babylon. And think of our text today, Abram versus Egypt. These are trying moments which serve to illustrate the sovereignty of God and at times the weakness, the weaknesses of His chosen people. Trying moments that serve to illustrate the sovereign power of God, but also the weaknesses of His chosen people. The question arises in moments like these, where will we seek refuge when our world is shaken or the fear of a shaking is upon us? Where will we seek refuge? Will the foundation stones of God's promises, the ones that inspired Abram to build altars, for instance, will they withstand the storms of trial? Are God's promises strong enough to handle the storms of trial in this fallen world? That's the question that's before Abram in our text and will be before us at many moments in our own lives. We might as well admit it. Abraham finds himself, or Abram at this time, finds himself in such a moment in Genesis 12. He must face the prospect of endurance and faith through hostile territory. And this will not be the only time he will face adversity of this sort. In fact, a nearly identical scenario will reoccur in Genesis 20. If you want to study on your own time, Turn over to Genesis 20 in your reading this week, and you will notice it's amazing, but virtually the exact same situation, just different people in different places, takes place, and once again we find Abraham in his weakness, Abram, Abraham at that time, passing off Sarah as his wife, misleading a guy who he thought would destroy him to, to steal his wife if he didn't, you know, deceive him so. So th this will not be the only time that Abram will face adversity. A nearly identical scenario occurs in Genesis 20. This time, Abimelech, king of Gerar, uh, sought to take Sarah as his wife, who was misled by Abraham, who passed her off as his sister once again. The, concept, the context of that event, Genesis 20, is even more detailed and illustrates again the faithfulness of God in spite of the failure of His servants, proving that He... The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, through Jesus Christ, as we have seen recently in Hebrews 11, 
is truly the one and only founder and perfecter of our faith. Children, question for you. Is Abraham the founder and perfecter of our faith as Christians? Young people? No. Who is the founder and perfecter of our faith as Christians? Jesus Christ. That is what Hebrews 12.2 has told us. So in addition to this event in Genesis 12, uh, in, in addition, this event in Genesis 12 introduces a number of symbolic categories. This wouldn't be the last time God's people took refuge in Egypt. This wouldn't be the last time that famine tested the resolve of the Messianic line. This wouldn't be the last time that the covenant comes into conflict in hostile territory. Many other events very similar would succeed this one. So in Genesis 12, we are introduced to a number of symbolic concepts and categories which foreshadow future events in the history of the lineage of Abraham. So there's kind of an introduction and setup. Let me give you a heading for three points today. Abraham's journey to Egypt features the following. Number one, crisis. Key word with a C, crisis, test of faith. Abraham's journey to Egypt in our text today, it features a test of faith. Secondly, it features a conspiracy. That's a secret plan, a plan devised in a hidden place for a particular end. And under this conspiracy, I have this phrase, covenant compromise. So Abraham compromises a covenant in some way through this conspiracy. Thirdly, what's featured in Abram's journey are consequences. The consequences of two types, you could say. Discipline for himself and judgment for Pharaoh. Crisis, conspiracy, consequences. Abraham's journey features these things. Now, in our family worship, I encourage you parents to adopt this if you need an idea for your family worship from time to time. I think it's a good exercise. We do what's called a Ten Commandment test. Uh, kids, do you know what a Ten Commandment test is? You guys know what a Ten Commandment test is? Yeah, that's true. Well, let me explain the Ten Commandment test. I give you a scenario... And to, you tell me which of God's Ten Commandments is either broken or applies in this situation, okay? So think about the story we've just read from Scripture. Abraham has to go to Egypt because he's run out of food. He's super scared that the bad guys in Egypt will steal his wife. So he pretends that she is his sister so that he will not be killed. Now, which of the Ten Commandments was broken by Abraham's action, young people. That's very good. I hear three or four saying, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not bear false witness. I think you're on the right track there. The commandment of God that is at issue here primarily is one of truthfulness versus lying or bearing false witness. Abraham is not testifying to the truth of his covenant relationship with his bride, with his wife, Sarah, neither is he testifying to the power of God's covenant with him. Instead, he proceeds in fear and compromises both of those covenants, which we will see in due course, at least in his testimony. In this way, Abraham's journey begins to Egypt, begins featuring a crisis or a test of faith. Note these trying elements. Number one, a famine. Not an easy situation to be faithful under, is it? When your life and livelihood are challenged by the want or the lack of food. 
Secondly, under test of faith, Egypt. Egypt represents a global empire, a powerful authority, an imposing force, and a foreign land, unfamiliar and intimidating. Famine, Egypt. Thirdly, pagan peoples generally. What of those who have no familiarity or understanding with your convictions and your worldview? Famine, authorities, unbelievers, these are the things that tested Abraham's faith. These three primarily we see featured in our text. Note again Genesis 12.10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Verse 12, skip ahead a little. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will say, kill me, but they will let you live. There's at least three tests of faith that are implied in these two verses. First of all, a famine. Secondly, a foreign land, Egypt. Thirdly, the inhabitants of that land, Abram imagines, are, want to steal his wife. They will likely uh, exercise this or the force against him to take away his beautiful bride. Famine. Famine represents something in Scripture, a very basic level test of faith. There was a famine in the land at this time. There would be other famines in the land in the future. But, and we might just read quickly over the scenario and the setting and miss how deep the implications of this event were. Note, Abraham has just received a promise that this land that God is giving to him is going to represent hope, lineage, and a future. Soon he will receive a promise that this land will be the dwelling place from which will spring the fruitfulness of his future generations so that his children will have children, will have children, will have children, and so forth until the whole world is populated just like the sand or just like the seashore is with various grains of sand or the night sky is with the innumerable stars. How is this going to happen if you can't even eat. Food is so basic to our existence that when we begin to feel a real lack of that very basic means of survival, people get desperate. It is hard to have faith when your most basic means of survival is threatened. So empathize with the moment with Abram's plight. Don't judge too quickly. If you were in his shoes, I wonder how you would respond. There was a famine in the land so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was not just your, you know, occasional lack of this food stuff or the other. Maybe it's a bad grain harvest, but we can survive on turnips. Maybe we'll have to eat potatoes to get us through, but we'll make it. No, the famine was severe. Why would the land of promise prove so unfruitful and barren, Abraham might have wondered, especially when the neighboring areas like Egypt seem to flourish at the shores of the Nile River? Egypt was situated to benefit from the irrigating force of one of the world's largest rivers. The Nile Delta spread out and gave that life-giving water to fields and fields of produce. Abraham could look south, as it were, and he could see just beyond the horizon of the withering fig trees that surrounded him, just beyond the fallow ground of this rainless landscape, and in that neighboring and that distant yet neighboring country, was overflowing bounty. And so you can understand why he set his face toward that land. Perhaps in this stat, perhaps in this plan for the journey, from the very beginning, he was tempted to doubt the surety of God's promises. Was this land really all it was promised and cracked up to be? A 
especially when it proved to not give him the food that is necessary for him living for the next couple weeks, let alone bearing children that will provide a legacy for him in the future. Opportunity to doubt abounds in trials like these. So, as we mentioned, this wasn't the only time that famine uh, threatened and afflicted the people of God. Famine as a test of faith reappears, and it becomes symbolic. It's one of those symbols in our text, sort of a quintessential trial condition in Scripture. Think of Abraham's grandson and his family, Jacob and his sons. Once again, a seven-year famine has struck the land, and once again, what do they do? They find refuge in Egypt. They would face similar prospects, not realizing that fertile Egypt itself did not hold out hope for them, but as the testimony of God's will, His sovereignty unfolded in the story of Joseph, they found that God had provided for them through their estranged son, through their estranged brother, whose wisdom and calling would sustain them in this time of absolute despair as famine was stealing from them the promise of life tomorrow, life next week. And so you see these conditions are similar as a test of faith that God has ordered to prove Himself sufficient and to remind us that there is no supply outside of His sovereign will. This begs us to ask the question in New Testament terms, who is the true bread of life? Is Egypt the real source of bread of life? How about modern terms? Is the economy of America the real bread of our life? Is our hope and is our survival invested in what our crops or the physical well-being, our grocery shelves, our ability to pay for them? Is that where our ultimate and true hope is invested? We know from the Scriptures that Christ Himself is revealed as the bread of life. And do we have faith that that is true? Do we have faith to suffer want on account of His name? Do we have faith that He will supply our every need according to His riches and glory, and therefore any trial in the meantime is by His sovereign design? It's hard to have faith in times of famine. Nevertheless, the Lord does provide for His people. He provides not only bread provisionally, but even more so, and ultimately He provides bread that leads unto eternal life. And this is the larger message in times like these. Think of the wilderness wanderings of God's people. God called His people for 40 years of wandering in a place where they could never stop long enough to plant seeds, to water them, and to harvest a crop. It was similar to famine conditions, was it not? So how were they provided for in the wilderness, young people? How did the people of God, how did the children of Israel eat when they were traveling through the wilderness? Does anyone remember? How did the children of Israel eat when they were on their wilderness journey for 40 years? Angel bread? Yeah, I like it. That's true. The bread of angels, it's referred to in Scripture. Another name for it, anyone? Bread of angels, or it starts with an M? Ah, manna, very good. The Lord, the author of life, the supplier of our sustenance and well-being, the one whose grace blesses even the ecosystem to supply rain for the just and the unjust, demonstrated His sovereignty over the provision of His people by giving them the bread of angels, manna from heaven, to sustain His people during famine. However, 
when you're weary and walking, and when you don't see any, you know, waving grain on the horizon, when there is no corn in the fields surrounding you, but only a landscape of utter barrenness, it can be a real test of faith. What is Egypt according to Scripture? Egypt represents something too, not just famine, but a foreign power. Egypt represents a number of things as the uh, Scripture continues to unfold. It's a worldly dwelling place. As we mentioned, it's the city of man. It's a great example of this, the legacy of Ham, city builders. Uh, Egypt represents hope and empire. Egypt represents a competing authority to the Word of God. Think of Moses and his clash, his conflict with the court magicians. I think Paul named them Janus and Jambres. So Janus and Jambres come out and they're like, oh, these wonders that you are doing, you magician, self-acclaimed prophet. We can do the same things. And so in the court of Pharaoh, they throw down their staves and they become snakes, just as Moses had moments before. But what happens? The serpent of Moses' staff consumes, eats, right? You guys remember? The snakes of Janus and Jambres, their serpents, thus demonstrating that the Lord is sovereign in His power. And though Egypt represented competing authority, Pharaoh and all the armies he could boast were no match for a people who were guarded and guided by Yahweh, the I Am, the covenant keeper. When all the chariots and the horsemen chased Moses and his people down, what happened to them? They drowned in the Red Sea. Nevertheless, the people were fearful of Egypt, and they wanted to return to Egypt. Why? Because of the wilderness. They got sick of eating manna. Egypt represented an alternative supply. At least, yeah, we were slaves, but at least we had leeks and onions and so forth. Egypt is the evident sovereign. To the mere eyes of man, you know, without the eyes of faith, Egypt seems to be the top dog, seems to be the one in charge, seems to be the most powerful authority. They are the imposing power. They are the alternative supply. They are the evident sovereign. They represent the city of man, a worldly dwelling, a hope of empire, and a competing authority. And this was intimidating to Abraham. He was entering into a land. He was going to go there as a beggar. And as he did so, he was struck with fear of what Egypt represented. So again, what happens when a covenant people, people who are marked by the hope found in significant sons, what happens when they are called to dwell in a city, when they are called to come in conflict in a culture or in an area, in an era of history that does not share their views? Well, they find themselves among pagans in this case. How does a covenant people negotiate life among a worldly, a wicked, a pagan, a godless society? Turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 is a New Testament application of this very principle. By the way, in our upcoming communion series, it is my plan to begin a series in 1 and 2 Peter that will begin, Lord willing, next week. In 1 Peter 2.11, we read this. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Uh, kids, what is a sojourner? Does anyone know? Sojourner is someone who... Hmm, sojourner, anyone? A traveler, that's exactly right. A sojourner is someone who's a traveler, he's a foreigner in a land that is not his home. Sojourner and exile, <coughs> that, those are words that describe us to some degree. 
We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. It says in verse 12, just like Abraham was called to be trust God in the midst of an ungodly people, so we are called in 1 Peter 2.12 to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It says, be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. These are instructions for people like Abraham who find themselves as strangers, sojourners, foreigners, exiles, aliens in a land which does not necessarily share their values or worldview. They are called to live uncompromising lives of faithfulness. They are called to do good, to seek, as it says in Jeremiah 29, the welfare of the people. Jeremiah 29, 4-14, we won't go there this morning, but a great companion text. And a individual who would have read, listened to, heard the declaration of the prophet Jeremiah and applied his words was Daniel, who we mentioned before. Think of Daniel in Babylon. He was a great example of a man that remained unfaithful in a world, in an environment, in an empire that represented what Egypt did back in Abraham's day. How did Daniel interact among a people who did not share his religion, but represented an evident sovereign, hope and empire, the city of man, the legacy of Ham, city builders, a worldly dwelling, a competing authority, an imposing power, an alternative supply? Well, Daniel trusted the word of the Lord more than he feared the word of the king. And though he sought to honor as far as he could the sovereign institution of that foreign authority, he did not go so far as to break his greater king's law in so doing. And so you see different tests in Daniel's life and his friends. And as Daniel passes them, the Lord preserves his life among a foreign people, and it becomes a great blessing and testimony to the welfare of Babylon. His influence only grows. We are not promised influence in every case in a wicked world, an imposing power, worldly authority that doesn't share our values. But there are many times when the Lord will use your uncompromising Christian law-keeping as a testimony, as a great benefit to the world around you. Don't be surprised if you experience this kind of influence in small, or admittedly, perhaps small ways, but, you know, God has cho chosen His godly servants to influence even kings, and this day there, is, there are these kinds of scenarios that yet play out before us. The key is to fear the king of kings more than you fear the king. You honor the king because you fear the Lord. Now, when, this, when you fear the king more than you fear God, you fall into the trap of Abraham, and you fail the test of faith. But thank God for his mercy. Nevertheless, when you're in Daniel's situation, by the grace of God, you honor the king of kings, uh, even when his word contravenes the king, there is great opportunity for testimony, even if you die, so doing. Nevertheless, martyr, word means to testify, it, uh, even giving your life in loyalty to a higher authority is itself a powerful testimony. So here we have Abraham's journey to Egypt features this crisis, this clash, this conflict, this test of faith, famine, Egypt, 
He finds himself among the pagans. Second major point today, Abraham's journey to Egypt features conspiracy. Now, this is covenant compromise. What will Abraham do because he fears this situation? Well, he conspires with his wife. Listen to what the plan they come up with. Genesis 12, 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman, a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but they will let you live. So here's his plan. Verse 13. Say you are my sister. We find in Genesis 20, this is a half-truth. There is this familial relationship, but we know that this is meant to deceive, it's meant to mislead, it's motivated by something else than truth, it's motivated by something else than confidence in God's covenant and His Word, it's motivated by fear, as we'll see in a moment. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And then we have the circumstances which play out when Abraham... Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians saw, yes, indeed, that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram and Sarai conspired. They planned in secret to deceive others. Why? Because they were facing the danger of a foreign land and a hostile culture. What was their motive? Why did they do this? Well, their motives involved two things, fear and security. This story illustrates perennial temptations. That means temptations that apply in every generation. Fear can be a powerful motivation to disobey the Lord and to come up with a different plan to save yourself or to preserve yourself or to hedge your bets. Instead of trusting His Word alone, fear often moves us to transgress His law. And so, as we mentioned, the commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness, was in question as Abraham moved forward motivated by fear. So this, these perennial temptations, how many are moved to compromise their covenant relationships to God, to family, both of those are featured here, by fear. How many times do our commitments to one another, and especially to God, how many times are they compromised through being afraid of what lies around the corner, having a lack of assurance, uncertainty what the future holds? Or how many of our relationships to God and to family are compromised because of the promise of security? How many false idols are served by these same motives? Even today, our government promises us freedom from fear and security, cradle to grave, welfare, and so forth. Many of the policies that you will hear advocated for as the election season ramp up will play on people's fears. Uh, this is so obvious, you have to be deaf to the news not to recognize it. You have to be completely obtuse not to realize that the primary currency that is peddled as these powers that compete you know, in the political realm, don't trade power for the promise of security. They don't, uh, they, and at every turn, they trade power for the promise of freedom from fear and so forth. But there's also the hope of prosperity. It's interesting. Abraham prospers because of this scheme. Now, I don't know. It's not clear in the text that he did this in order to, I suspect he did not. I suspect he did not do this so as to co coerce uh, Pharaoh to give him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
But nevertheless, all of a sudden, all of this wealth starts pouring in, which in context of the time would have been the bride price. Presumably, this is Pharaoh saying, I will give you these things as gifts in exchange for your sister, quote-unquote, hand in marriage. So here we have three things at play. Potential motives, fear, security, and prosperity. All these were at play in this story. For instance, it may have been a lot harder for Abraham to uh, go back or to reconsider his scheme, his strategy, his conspiracy here, after it's clear that it is working. It's working really well. Secondly, under conspiracy, we have the means. What was the means that Abraham used, Abram used to ensure himself, hedge his bets to secure safety? It was an impulsive reaction to lean on his own ingenuity. Listen, Abraham embraced a strategy which took into account the limitations, his limitations and his resources, but what did it not take into account? The covenant of God. It disregarded the omnipotence of God. How many of our plans do exactly this? We make plans so often based upon our resources, what we tangibly have, and our limitations, what we fear, without taking into account the Word of God. No good plan, no good decision is ever based on our ability and our resources alone or our limitations alone. Good plans, good decisions, wisdom in moving forward, negotiating this life, must include the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the author of Proverbs tells us, is the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. A fool disregards the fear of the Lord and comes up with what he thinks is a really wise plan. And by certain metrics, which is our third point under this, modus, means, and metric, by certain standards of measure or metric, it was working, quote-unquote. But it was heaping up major consequences all the while. Remember what has happened. This is a stark contrast in the text to the words that have gone before. Remember verse 7? The Lord appeared to Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. What did he intend that altar to convey? Well, certainly faith in God's promises for himself to remember and his sons. But now, instead of revisiting that altar in a time of famine, he was hatching a plan based on fear motivated by a promise of security that he would secure by his own resource because he feared his own limitations. But what had he forgotten? The covenant of God, the word of God, and the omnipotence of God. The fact that God is all-powerful. The God who appeared to Abram on his wilderness journey, could he not and would he not protect him in this foreign land? Of course he would. The means that Abram deployed betrayed in this moment his lack of faith. It showed his own frailty and weakness. Suddenly he was like Peter walking on the water, looking at the danger of the ways rather than the testimony of victory over nature in Jesus Christ walking upon them. Another illustration of a similar theme. Look to Christ. Look to God's word. And draw from there your motive, your motive and your means for securing your future. Namely, trusting in the power of God's Word. As we contrast this means 
with the altar moments that preceded this, uh, this event in Abram's life, we're reminded of the difference between the first and the second commandment in the law. And this is just a principle I'll pass on to you. I've mentioned it before, but I find it helpful. Number one, so some might ask, or some might charge, they might object to the wisdom of the commandments and say the first two are certainly redundant. Uh, young people, commandment number one in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have... Awesome. Commandment number two, thou shalt not... Yeah, that's a thorough answer. Very good. Commandment one, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. And as some of you guys who are uh, really recounting your commandments well, there's examples, you know, neither in created things in the heavens above or the earth below and so forth. So one might ask, the question arises, what is the difference between the first and second commandment? I remember a preacher that I highly respect, Joe Moorcraft, and uh, Pastor Moorcraft said the difference between the first and the second commandment is the difference between ends and means. In the first commandment, God declares His ends. He is the one we are to worship. In the second commandment, He says He is sovereign not only over the ends or the goal, but the means, the instrument to get there. God is a jealous God, it says, in that same passage in Exodus 20. And He doesn't want just people to worship Him, but He desires people to worship Him in spirit and in truth, in New Testament language, for them to worship Him by the means that He has granted. So when we consider the means by which we secure our own future, the second commandment instructs us that this too is subject to the authority and word of God. There, that is to say, we are never to break God's commandment in order to secure the hope for His future for us. I got a phone call this week. I kind of hesitated to use this as an example, but it does fit here, so I think I'll go ahead. I got a phone call this week, sometimes this happens, where someone will call me out of the blue, they'll get the number from a web search or something, and they said they were in, uh, had a real hardship, they needed to get somewhere to be a donor to supply for their daughter's leukemia, they're a blood donor and so forth, and didn't have gas money to get there. So I usually have a routine how I answer these kinds of questions, and it begins with a few questions. Do you have a local church? And I'll tell them, you know, I am limited uh, in some degree as a pastor of this church to primarily addressing the needs of our own body. However, if you have a local church, I'd be more than willing to contact your pastor and even set up a meeting, you know, and so forth. And so he kind of danced around that issue and gave a couple reasons why he didn't have one. Then I asked if he had visited another institution and so on. Anyways, he was getting impatient with me and he ended up hanging up on me. But one thing he said before he slammed the phone down was, well, God helps those who help themselves, so I guess I'll just have to steal the money. And I said, no, no, sir, that, that is incorrect. And so it is, is it a good end to be a blood donor for your uh, child who, who needs the blood to help with her treatment for leukemia? Absolutely. That is a great and virtuous goal. But what about securing money for that by stealing? No. That is embracing a means that breaks God's law for an end that you that may well be virtuous. And this is the idea. Here, it is not right for Abraham to disregard God's law for the motive of sparing himself so that the promises can come true. God is sovereign and jealous. He has ordained the ends. He's ordained the means. Now, there's a popular idea 
ideal philosophy in our day, which is sometimes called pragmatism. And that is, you judge the values of something based on whether it works or not. Did Abraham's plan work? Yeah, it worked. It worked almost too good. Not only was his life spared, but he started getting gifts. He got rich off of this plan. Totally worked. If the metric that you use to justify something was whether it works or not, Abraham, in this moment, would be the hero. You know, hero. Uh, but no, God has given us a different standard, which is His Word. Does this follow His law? Better to die faithful to the Word of the Lord than to be a rich man who disregards the metric that God uh, lays out for righteousness. Righteousness is by His law. As Abraham's scheme played out, he was forced to accept gifts, riches, as a bride price for Sarai. And because if he didn't, he would risk his plan being revealed. So this is an interesting twist, is it not? And you can kind of see he's digging a hole for himself. If he feared the anger of Pharaoh before, he probably really feared it now. How much more angry might Pharaoh be when he finds out the truth after he's given all these camels and all this expensive stuff to Abraham? And so, in covenant compromise... Abraham finds himself in this situation. Final point, consequences. Abraham's journey to Egypt features crisis, a test of faith, conspiracy, covenant compromise, thirdly, consequences. Now, God will always confirm the truth of His Word. God will always confirm His covenant. But sometimes, we put Him in the situation where confirmation of His covenant will come by discipline, if you are a believer or confirmation of His covenant will come by judgment if you're an unbeliever. God's Word and His promise to Abraham were proven true, but in Abraham's life it came by way of corrective discipline. In Pharaoh's case, it came by way of what we would consider maybe unfair judgment. After all, he didn't know. Let's, or let's behold this reality in our Scriptures today. So in verse 17... The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham, called Abraham, Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And if he had any reason to be upset and angry, Vengeful toward Abraham, now would have been the case. Nevertheless, the Lord protected Abraham. Pharaoh had way more reason to kill him after all this is revealed than he did just being introduced to this guy who entered his land earlier. Nevertheless, verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and note, all that he had. Presumably, Abram left this situation with all those camels and everything else, and his wife being spared from death, and being spared, you know, losing his bride. Nevertheless, there were consequences for Abram. His household was thrown into turmoil by this event. Could you imagine the trust between Abram and Sarai being affected by this scenario? Men, put yourself in Abram's shoes and think of this as a good idea. Negotiating the, your wife in order to secure your own safety? That is a bad, a bad idea. Fear drives men to do such foolish things, to compromise covenants. 
fear and sometimes uh, the promise of security, sometimes the promise of riches, uh, uh, prosperity, as we've noticed before. These are the things that motivate men to compromise their covenants, yet there are consequences. Abraham's household was thrown into turmoil, and I submit to you the seeds of disorder, the seeds of strife in Abram's household were probably sown in this event, but they began to grow and take root in many more events through his life. Again, with Abimelech, same situation. But you remember Hagar? Who is Hagar? It was the maidservant of Sarai. And again, a conspiracy was hatched between Sarah and Abram because she was barren, she's getting old, she didn't have a kid, so he needed to come up with another idea. And so what did they do? They violated God's commandment. Once again, thou shalt not commit adultery. spirit of that commandment is, uh, through the rest of Scripture testified to, that God has ordained that one man and one woman until death do them part. That's what defines, defines a marriage. But they broaden the definition to include her maidservant. And guess where Hagar was from? Does anyone know what country Hagar was from? Egypt, that's correct. Could it be that Hagar was a servant that Abram had had acquired actually in this very event. Verse 16, he, for her sake, Pharaoh dwelt well with Abraham, and he had, so these are the gifts, the assumed bride price, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, uh, donkeys, and camels. It could very well be that Hagar, I haven't even read any commentaries, it just kind of strikes me in the record it, as an interesting twist that Hagar herself may have entered into the uh, family, broadly speaking, of Abram at this time, household turmoil. The covenant of family, listen, though distinct from the covenant of grace, is so closely tied to it that to compromise one is to affect the other. The covenant of family is so closely tied to the covenant of grace that to compromise one is to affect the other. Because Abraham did not believe in God's covenant of grace, as it were, his promise to preserve him, to provide for him a lineage, he was willing to compromise the covenant of family and pretend that his wife was not his wife, and later to take another wife uh, from the Egyptian women, uh, Hagar, namely, to try to, through his own ingenuity, his own means, accomplish promises in an alternate way. So that's something to keep in mind by way of consequences. Discipline entered the house of Abram in this way. Now, what about consequences for Pharaoh? Wrath by plague. Pharaoh's ignorance of the covenant was no excuse. Not only was God's sovereignty unequivocally affirmed and asserted, but the responsibility for not disclosing the terms of God's will unwittingly fell heavy upon Abram. This doesn't seem fair, does it, at first glance? The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. He didn't know. Nevertheless, ignorance of the covenant is no excuse. This has application for us today. We are called to testify to the truth of God's word, to covenant terms, to a world that is unbelieving. And there will come a day of reckoning for everyone, where every sinner stands before the judgment seat of God. And they may try to plead, my neighbor didn't tell me about Jesus when he had the opportunity. Will that spare him from hell? No. Just like the plagues that visited Pharaoh's house at this time, the word to every hell-bent sinner is ignorance of the covenant is no excuse. And also, we live in a world that testifies to a sovereign God. Anyways, as Roman 1 says, nevertheless, 
Can you feel the weight of responsibility that fell on Abraham's shoulders, Abraham's shoulders when he realized that these plagues, you know, these afflictions, whatever it was, diseases and otherwise, plagues that would revisit Egypt in the future, when they began to terrorize the household of Pharaoh, he knew it was because of him. Because he did not tell the truth. Because he did not reveal the covenant to the unbeliever, then in part, he felt the weight of this consequence, the wrath that fell upon Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him as much. He said, why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. At my grandpa's funeral last week, there was a woman who stood up and she, you know, it was a time of remembering moments of interaction, pleasant memories and whatever with my grandpa and so forth. And after my grandpa became a believer, he realized that there were other believers in his life that he had met prior to. And this woman was one of them. And she stood up and she said, after Dell became a Christian, he came back to me and said, why did you never tell me about Jesus Christ? And that affected her really profoundly, so much so that now I think she's in her 80s. She remembers that distinctly. That has analogy to this situation here. Pharaoh goes to Abram and he says, why didn't you tell me the truth about your relationship with your wife? And Abram's family is very significant. You know, if he had told the truth, he could have maybe had the opportunity to testify to the only way of salvation, trusting that God through this line of significant sons would one day provide a savior to save even Egyptians from their sin. But instead of doing that, Abram did not evangelize to the Egyptians, but sought only his own security. And out of fear, he hid the truth. And then, as judgment befell, the plague fell upon Pharaoh's house. He, no doubt, felt the weight of that. While he feared disclosing the truth would be a danger to him, ironically, Abram's silence and secrecy resulted in danger and harm befalling the unbelievers. Uh, Sobering thought. Lastly, this morning, let me ask you a question. Is Abram the second Adam? Is Abram the Adam to come? Is Abraham the one who would succeed where Adam failed? No. Our story today makes it obvious that he is not. You guys remember we asked that same question of Noah? Noah gloriously used to save the people, ate his family through the waters of judgment. But then we find him after the floods have subsided in his vineyard, drunk on wine, naked in his tent, and in this shameful circumstance. And then we, we ask the question at that time, was Noah the second Adam? No. Young people, who is the second Adam? Jesus. One final reference for you this morning. Turn there with me as we close. Ephesians chapter 5. This is a familiar one for you, I'm sure, especially if you've attended any weddings that I've preached over the years. This is my favorite for a wedding text. Ephesians 5, we have instructions that Paul gives for the covenant relationship of husbands to wives. And who does he point to as our model? Yes, he points to Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it goes on to say that he does so by sanctifying her, cleansing her by the washing of the water of the word. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. 
because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Did Abram hold fast to Sarai in our story today? He did not. Why? Because he was not the second Adam. He failed in his duty toward his wife and toward the Lord. This mystery is profound, Paul goes on, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. While Abraham, Abram negotiated with his bride to protect himself, Jesus did the exact opposite. He gave his own life to ransom us, his bride. Ephesians 5, 25 and following. He, Jesus Christ, is proven by contrast to our account today to be the ultimate significant son. He is the true second Adam. And forgiveness and hope for Abraham and his failings is found in him and in him alone, in faith of the significant son to come. And forgiveness and hope for our own failings when we compromise the covenant, when we put our loved ones in jeopardy because we don't follow the word of God, when we disregard our covenant with the Lord by failing in our fear to accurately represent Him in a hostile world, assurance of our own pardon is found in the second Adam. Mercy for our failings is found in Jesus Christ because of the very fact that He did not put His bride in danger to save Himself, but put Himself to the cross to save His bride. So in the bigger picture of gospel reality, we see the contrast between Abraham of old, the significant son who was just a shadow and type, and the one who fulfilled where Abram failed absolutely perfectly. Let us look to him as we close this morning's message. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Dear Lord, we are so thankful that hope for us, wicked, wayward, frail sinners, as found in the true second Adam, Jesus Christ. Yes, Abram has failed his family, just as we have failed our own. We've fallen short, every one of us, of the glory of God. And we prove as much any time we break your law for any excuse. Yet there is salvation and hope and forgiveness found in the one who laid his own life down to save his bride from the wrath that we deserved. We thank you for the perfection of Jesus Christ, his active and his passive obedience. We thank you for his self-sacrifice on Calvary. We thank you for his power over the grave, wherein we have the assurance of our own resurrection one day. And we thank you that all of history, when seen from the perspective of your Spirit's eye-opening, enabling power, and your Scriptures rightly understood in context, we thank you that all these things point us forward to our hope and the assurance of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.